And in Mark chapter 5, we're going to read the first 20 verses. So follow along with me as I read 1 through 20. We looked at the preparation for mission. It's being with Jesus before being sent by Jesus. And this evening, we're going to look at the, the model for mission, the prototype for mission, Jesus to the Gentiles. Follow along with me as I read, starting at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You may be seated. The world's strongest man competition is a competition that's been held annually since 1977. And every year it's a gathering of the strongest, most elite, most barbaric men who've come to the top of their regional events in the world's strongest man category to compete for the ultimate prize, the title of being crowned the world's strongest man. And these men have been put through some of the most strenuous, mind-boggling feats of strength as events to prove their strength in order to win the crown. Every year, the, the planners, the producers of the event come up with new and creative ideas to test the feats of strength that these men are capable of. They do things like the farmer's walk, where they have to hold 
between 275 to 375 pound anvil-like things in each hand and walk 100 yards as fast as they can or as far as they can. They have to do things like uh, the atlas stones where they have to lift increasingly heavy stones, five stones ranging from 250 to 350 pounds on increasingly tall platforms. They even do crazy things where they're, they're strapped to either a plane or a tram or a small truck or something and they have to harness in, repel themselves through a course as far and as fast as they can. Uh, last year's winner, Martin's Lechiso, a Latvian-American beast of a man, six foot three, 331 pounds, the 2000s five-time record champion is Polish guy, Marius Pujanowski. He was six foot one, but he was 313 pounds of solid muscle. You should have seen his neck. It was like as thick as an ox. And in the 2010s, the, the record-breaking American champion, Brian Shaw, six foot eight. And in his prime, 440 pounds. These men are beasts, strong. A lot of them were farm boys, and they certainly were farm boy strong. But none of these men have ever been put through an event in the World's Strongest Man competition where they were tied at the ankles and at the hands in metal iron shackles to see who could break out of the iron shackles the fastest. Because it's physically impossible, isn't it? For human beings as strong as even these men were, to break free from iron shackles. It doesn't happen. Humanly speaking, it can't happen. But supernatural beings do have the power to do that. Fallen angels, demons do have the power to do that. And we see that in the demonized man, don't we? He was constantly breaking free from the shackles when the people finally managed to restrain him and bind him. And so I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about the power and the authority of Jesus if he was able to restrain this unrestrainable man. If he was able to free this man from the demons that were tormenting him day and night. And in this section, we're going to see more than just this, this awesome, infinite authority and power of Jesus, but we're going to see the responses of groups of people, the, the demons and how they respond to Jesus, the townspeople and how they respond to Jesus, and even the previously demonized man himself and his response to Jesus. Because believe it or not, even if you encounter the supernatural power of Jesus face-to-face -face as they did, it doesn't guarantee faith and belief. No, not at all. And regardless of how the people respond, another thing we're going to notice here in this text is, is the model, the prototype for mission that we see in Jesus himself for the first time as he now goes out to the Gentile part of the region. Going out to somebody, healing somebody, an outcast in society that nobody will this garrison demoniac. And so look with me as we pick it up in verse one. 
It says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And just to backtrack a little bit for you to give you the context, this scene happens right off the back of, of the stormy sea scene. And before that, Jesus was on the western shore, the western bank, that's the Jewish side, in Capernaum, teaching all day. Nighttime approaches, he tells the disciples, he says, let's get a boat, take me to the other side. And as they're going to the other side, you remember the story. A great storm arises. The disciples are terrified, deathly afraid, and then suddenly Jesus stands up, speaks to the wind and to the sea, and calmness. And then they're even more afraid of Jesus. And so they ask that question of questions. They say, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they get to the other side. Now they're on the eastern side, it says, of the Sea of Galilee. And it's evening time. They're in the country of the Gerasenes. What is that? In Luke's account of this, in Luke 8, he actually calls it the the Gadarenes. So what is it? Is it the Gerasenes? Is it the Gadarenes? There's some discrepancy. Some commentators think, well, it couldn't have been Geressa because Geressa was 35 miles southeast on the eastern shore. And it says all this happened immediately when Jesus docked, when he moored ashore. So that's too far away. Oh, it must have been Gadara then, which is only about five miles away from the eastern shore. And I think the answer is in the language itself. It's helpful. You see, it says it's the country of the Gerasenes, the country of the Gadarenes. It's a both and, not an either or. And if you look at the end of this in verse 20, he calls it the Decapolis, which is, it's this whole area. It was known as a region of 10 towns, a region of 10 cities, the Decapolis. So it's not either or, it's, it's both and. This happens somewhere in and around the region of the 10 towns, of the 10 cities on the eastern shore. And look what verses 2 to 5 say in describing this disturbed man. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is a very disturbed man. Are you seeing the state that he's in? He has unclean spirits, verse 2. He's living among the tombs, which means among the dead, with dead people's bones, verse 3. No one could bind him, not even with a chain or shackles. He would break the chains and shackles apart. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. I wonder what he was screaming out and yelling all the day long and all the night long in frustration. Was he angry? Was he frustrated? Not understanding what was happening to him, what was going on in his body and in his mind? Incontrollable outbursts of rage? 
something inside of him, not quite knowing how to describe it or what's going on, causing him to, to terrorize this whole region in this countryside. I'm sure he must have been angry at everyone around him, at life, maybe even at God, whatever conception of God he had. And look, when he does have visitors, it's only the strong men from the local town, isn't it? Who come back to try to restrain him again after he breaks free from the shackles. And, and the word they use there, to subdue, it, it actually is translated elsewhere, tame. They're trying to tame him. He really is in a beastly condition. He's become as wild as an animal. It doesn't become any lower than this for someone. How much lower can a person get? Can you imagine the pain and suffering that he's going through? Crying out day and night. What would he have been crying out and saying? Cries for help? Imagine, this was a man who had a life before all this, a family perhaps, parents and siblings to be sure, maybe a wife and children, and he's lost it all. It's all gone. And he's living among the tombs with dead people, outcast, ostracized in society. Nobody will come near to him for fear of their life. He's all alone. He's got nothing left. And so he probably even tries to kill himself. He's cutting himself. Crying out, somebody, anyone, please, help me. But no one comes. No one answers. Until now. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, look at the man's response. He's at the top of the hill in the mountainous cave region there. He must see a boat, people coming from afar. And whether him or the demons inside of him, something just causes him to rush down in anger as he would every other person in sight. He bolts down the hill as fast as he can. And it says immediately when he sees Jesus, he falls down before him. He falls down before him. And that's probably the demons inside causing him to fall down before him because they know who he is. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And the demons do know who he is. It's this irony that Mark builds up throughout his whole gospel. Up until this point, nobody knows. The crowds don't know. The people don't know. The 12 don't know even. But the demons know. In Mark 1, they call him son of the most high. In Mark 3, they call him the, the son of God. 
And here he calls him son of the most high God. Son of the most high God. And the demon's terrified. Falls down before him, prostrate in worship, whether it's true worship or not. No, I don't think demons are capable of true worship, but it's reverence at the very least. He knows who Jesus is. Look what he says. Have you come to torment me before the appointed time? What does that mean? He makes him take an oath, tries to make him take an oath, to swear to God, you, you won't torment me. I adjure you by God. Swear to God type of a thing. As though he could get Jesus to do anything. Of course he couldn't. But he tries. He tries. And look at Jesus' response. Why was this man so terrified? Why was this man prostrate before him? This man full of demons. For he was saying to him, speaking of Jesus, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. What is that Legion? Well, you need to understand this was a Roman military term. And in a legion, there was approximately 6,000 men, 6,000 foot soldiers and approximately 200 horsemen. So what are you saying, Sebastian? This man was filled with 6,000 demons? Not necessarily. He could have been. I don't think that's necessarily the point. The point he's trying to make is at the end of that verse where he says, for we are many. For we are many. We are legion. There's a lot of us which just speaks to the authority and the power of Jesus all the more. It's not one demon coming before him prostrate. It's hundreds, maybe thousands. And it's also at this point that we need to notice that a, a knowledge of Jesus is not enough. It's not enough to have some sort of head knowledge, some intellectual assent to know who Jesus is. No, you need to believe in who he says he is, who the Bible says he is. You need faith. The demons recognize him and know who he is, but they're irredeemable. We know that. They're fallen. No, you need faith. You need to believe. And if you believe, you follow him and you live as he calls you to live. And so the demon response isn't right. That's not the right response to Jesus and his authority and his power. Look at verses 11 to 13. Backtracking to 10. And he begged them earnestly not to send them out of the country. It's the legion of demons. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. Why would the demons ask to be sent into the herd of pigs? 
Why would they ask that? Well, first of all, they didn't want to be thrown into the abyss, if you'll recall. They didn't want to be cast out of the country, it says here. In Luke's account, he says the abyss in Luke 8, 31. What is this abyss? It's the Revelation 21 to 3 abyss, the pit where Satan and the Antichrist and the beast will be thrown in during the millennial reign for a thousand years on earth when Christ comes down and establishes his kingdom. It's that abyss. They don't want Jesus to send them there because it's over. That's the torment they're talking about. So he says they're probably sitting there in a panic. The only other physical beings to possess, because they can only possess physical beings, being spiritual themselves, taking a look around, surveying the land. All they see is a herd of pigs, and they say, anything but the abyss, send us into the pigs. And so Jesus agrees. He sends them into the pigs. And before any of you animal lovers in the audience call PETA on Jesus, <laughs> you need to know that he does care about animals. And I know all of us do, right? Even pigs, these cute little pigs, immortalized in our minds and our hearts forever through little cartoons and characters, right? Little Miss Piggy, the three little pigs, Babe, in that pig in Charlotte's Web, whatever that pig's name was. <laughs> Wilbur. I know pigs mean a lot to you. And believe me, hey, nobody's more upset, nobody's more upset about this than me. This is 2,000 pigs. This is a lifetime supply of homegrown, GMO-free, Palestinian, Tlisa, and Shunka, <laughs> Meech, right? Kiftele, Calda Bosch for you nasty ones who like that stuff. Oh, back there. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. This is a big waste. I get that. But Jesus cares about the pigs, too. It's not that he doesn't care about them. We're told elsewhere in the Gospels, Matthew says he cares even for the birds of the sky and the flowers of the field. So he does care about the pigs. But the point of all this is that he cares infinitely more about one human being than he does 2,000 pigs. Because pigs don't have souls. Pigs aren't created in the image of God. Pigs are irredeemable. And so for Jesus, it's far more important for him to deliver one soul, one man, than to preserve the life of 2,000 pigs. This is nothing more than collateral damage at this point. And why does Jesus even grant the demon's request to go into the pigs? Why would he even answer them? Why would he do that? Why wouldn't he just send them into the abyss? Well, I think it's because he wants to set up and to show us and those who are reading Mark's gospel the response of the townspeople, their negative reaction to him. Look at what it says in verses 14 to 17. It says, so the pigs run over the cliff, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country 
And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it describes them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting, sorry, beg Jesus to depart from the region. Stop there. Now, compare their response to the demons for a minute. So the demons begged Jesus not to send them out of the country. And the townspeople begged Jesus to get out of the country. Why would they beg Jesus to get out of the country? I mean, they're terrified of him, yes. We get that. It says they're afraid now. They've never seen power like this. They were previously afraid of the the demonic power that was terrorizing them through this man, throughout the countryside. And now they're afraid of Jesus. But if anything, you'd think they'd be overjoyed, right? They'd give him some sort of hero's reception, a welcome, maybe build a statue in his honor. Oh, thank you so much for saving us. This man's been terrorizing our countryside, our hills. We were, uh, we were afraid to let our children walk by there to school, to do this and to do that, and you've rescued us. Thank you. How can we ever repay you? But that's not how they respond. They beg him to leave. They beg him to leave. Why would they beg him to leave? Do they care that much about the pigs? Do they care that much about the pigs' value in that region? 2,000 pigs would have been worth with inflation into the millions today. Is that what it is? Jesus is bad for local business, for economy? I think it's more than that. I think that's partly it. But I think that they beg him to leave because they fear the power that he yields and they know they have absolutely no control over it. It's almost as if they would rather live with this demonized man who's terrorizing their countryside, the Decapolis, than to live with the prospect of a man who's that powerful and whom they have no control over whatsoever. And so they asked him to leave. They begged him to leave. Maybe they do it politely. They're not rude about it. They're not hostile, like in Jesus' hometown. Oh, sir, we thank you for saving us, you know, for doing this. But I think it's best if you just leave and and go back to where you came from on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Wonderful. And so just like the demons, we see now that the people's fear is not enough of a response either, is it? It's, It's not enough to simply fear. It's not enough to witness and to acknowledge the power of Jesus. No, you need to want to appropriate that power for yourself. To experience that transforming power inside of you. That's what they were missing. They didn't want that. They loved their life too much. Their way of life. 
They acknowledge the power, wonderful, but you know what? No, I don't want to experience that power inside of me. I'm too comfortable. I love my life. I love my sin. I love what I'm doing. We have our economy. We have our way of life. Can, can you please leave? We don't want that. We don't need that change now. And it also goes to show that miraculous displays, miraculous manifestations of God in Jesus incarnate in the case of these people, that's not even enough to cause faith. Because witnessing miracles is not the cause of faith. Miracles primarily were never meant for evangelism, but to authenticate God's message. You need more than that. You just need faith. You need to want to believe. But these people didn't want that because they knew they had a choice. And it's the choice that every single person who's ever lived has to make. When you meet Jesus, you have a choice to make because if you believe in him and if you follow him, he will turn your whole world upside down. And most people don't want that because they love their lives. And they love themselves and they love their sin. And it's just like these people. And we've seen that how many times in our lives? I'm sure you have. It's possible to even see the transforming power of the gospel in the lives of people around you and still not be affected by it. Some of you know you've been saved by grace, pulled out of who knows what circumstances? God knows. And he's flipped your life up completely, 180 degree, upside down. You're a new creature with new desires, new passions, new intentions, new goals in life, new outlook, new perspective. The old you is dead, the new one raised to life in Christ. You're unrecognizable, and they see you, and they still won't believe. Because they don't want to believe. And Jesus doesn't force anyone to believe. He wants you willingly. So their response isn't enough. The townspeople. But what about the man? What about the demoniac? How does he respond to what Jesus has done for him? Look at verse 18. It says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Wow. So the demons begged Jesus not to send them away. The people begged Jesus to go away. And the man, he begs Jesus to be with him, to take him with him. This is discipleship language, right? Being with Jesus. We, we looked at that this morning. He wants to be with Jesus. It's the same response you had when you were saved, wasn't it? Whenever that moment was, whether it was in an instant over the course of time, you had this insatiable desire to be with Jesus. And though you couldn't be with him physically because he's already ascended into glory, you wanted to be with his people. So you participated in the church. You found a church. You got plugged in or you were raised in a Christian home and you had this fervent desire to know him more and so you study his word you read his word and apply it together together with a community of faith his people and it's the same thing for this man and even more with this man 
Jesus, you saved me when no one else could. You delivered me. I was hopeless. Oppressed. I had nothing to live for. All alone. Living in the tombs. And you came ashore and you rescued me. You delivered me from demons. And saved me spiritually. Take me with you. I want to be with you. That's what he's saying. And look at Jesus' response in verses 19 to 20. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So Jesus grants the demon's request to send them into the pigs. He even grants the people's request to go away himself. But he doesn't grant the man's request. This is a good request. This is a very noble Christian request to want to be with Jesus. Why doesn't he grant this man's request? Because he has a different purpose for this man. He's saying, it's not that I don't want you to be with me, friend. I do want you to be with me. It's a good desire for you to want to be with me and speaks to the authenticity of the faith you now have and belief in me. And it's not even that I don't have room on the boat. I mean, I could easily just toss Judas over the side and put him out of his misery and make room for you. You'd replace him. That's not a problem. It's not even necessarily a problem that I've come primarily first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And since you're a Gentile, that might you know, cause a lot of people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the Western Jewish side, to frown a little bit and be upset. That's not even necessarily that. No, I have a different plan and purpose for you. I want you to be my preacher. I want you to be my sent one, my messenger to the Decapolis, to the 10 towns. I want you to go home, go to your family, go to your friends, and tell them what the Lord has done for you and the mercy he has shown you. That's why you can't come with me. I don't know how many of the people in this Decapolis believed. It says they marveled when they heard and they saw him because the stories of his terrorizing that area had spread. And they see him now calm, clothed, sitting in his right mind, it says. Of course they marveled. How could they not marvel? I don't know how many of them believed. Maybe later on in life they did. But the point that Mark wants us to see here and the rest of the evangelists, Matthew and Luke, is that at this point, overwhelmingly the people didn't believe. And they wanted him gone. They wanted Jesus gone. 
But I think the man believed. You say, well, you're presuming a little bit. Sure, but I'm seeing evidence of discipleship all over here. Look at his response. He wants to be with Jesus. Okay, yeah, but that's a little bit of a stretch. I don't know if you can be so conclusive. You don't really know the man's heart. No, I don't. But did you notice verses 19 to 20? What does Jesus say? In verse 19, he says, go and tell the people how much the Lord has done for you. And what does the man say in verse 20? He goes around and tells everyone what? No, what Jesus had done for him. Jesus says, go and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. The Lord, the Lord God. And the man goes and tells everyone what Jesus had did for him. Do you see the difference? He's equating Jesus with the Lord. That's a right view and belief of Jesus. That's why I think this man was saved. And also because Jesus commissioned him to go preach and tell everyone what he'd done for him. And so he goes, he does just that. He goes home. He goes throughout all the Decapolis. Now, can you imagine for a second what this man's homecoming must have been like after being away for so long? Who knows how long this was going on for? Presumably at least months, years maybe. And he goes home. And you can imagine the celebration and the tears of joy. Can you imagine the shock on his family's face? Maybe his wife or his kids who hadn't seen their dad and his wife who hadn't seen her husband in who knows how long. Walking, clothed and in his right mind. And he's, at this point, probably running with excitement. Who knows what he's saying? He's saying, you won't understand what happened to me. You're not going to believe what happened to me. I don't even know what happened to me. Something came over me, incontrollable. I couldn't think. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. Angry at life, angry at God, angry at you. I hated everyone. I was all alone. I was in the tombs crying all day long and all night, and nobody heard me. No one was there to help me. And so I cut myself because I wanted to die. I wanted it all to end. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this man came ashore, and he rescued me. He delivered me from these demons. And if he delivered me from demons, I know he's God, because only God has power over demons and over life and death itself. And I believe in him, and I want you to believe in him too. Can you imagine what that was like? And if God can rescue this man, out of that kind of most hopeless circumstance imaginable. Do you not think that that same God, merciful, compassionate, and loving God in Jesus would come down from heaven and meet you in your circumstance, however painful, however difficult, emotional, physical, financial, whatever it is? Of course he will. Of course he can. There's another theme that's been dripping throughout this text that we haven't talked about yet. And it's the same theme of this very conference. 
Jesus to the Gentiles. You see, this is the first time in his ministry that he specifically and strategically went to a Gentile area to preach. So, well, he didn't say here he preached. Maybe I'm reaching. He didn't. But he certainly sent someone to go preach for him, didn't he, in the demon-possessed man? Which is a shadow, a foreshadow of that great Old Testament promise. The mysterion, as they called it, that was meant to include into salvation, not just God's Old Testament covenant people, but the unclean, the Gentiles, the nations. And this, this whole scene here is dripping with uncleanness. And unclean to the Jewish readers' minds, especially when Mark's readers at the time, and for us, it's talking about Gentiles. Remember, the Jews viewed them as unclean. Uh, first of all, this whole region is unclean because it's Gentiles, right? This Gerasene, this Decapolis. Then you have an unclean man, a Gentile, who's demonized, that's doubly unclean, and he's touching dead men's bones, that's triply unclean according to the Mosaic and Levitical law. And then you have pigs, 2,000 of them. They were unclean animals. The Jews weren't allowed to eat them. Unclean, grotesque, filthy, delicious animals. But not to them. But you know what? This is foreshadowing that Jesus came also to save those whom even the Jews considered to be the most unclean. Irredeemable in the eyes of the Jews. Gentiles. Non-Jews. The nations. Like you and me. Because no one is irredeemable in Jesus' eyes. No one is beyond the saving grace and the gospel of grace that he came to save by. And when Jesus, the son of the most high God, as the demons say, pronounces you clean, nobody can pronounce you unclean. This is Jesus, son of the most high God. This is who he came to reach the unclean. And this is who he commissioned us to take the good news of the gospel to reach. The unclean. And even the lowest of the lowest outcasts in society. Because no one is too unclean for the blood of Jesus to wash sparkling clean. Pray with me. Father, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you've chosen to set your saving love on us, unworthy, unclean sinners. We're grateful for the pattern, for the model you've set out for us, even in this text that we've looked at this evening, that we're to bring this, this gospel, your gospel, to everyone, no matter their background, no matter their circumstance, no matter how they look and who they are in the eyes of other people around them, you came to save all. 
You say in the Bible, it's your will that all men would repent and believe. Would you help us to have the attitude of Jesus in living on mission to reach everyone around us in society, even in this part of the world, the lowliest, the ones nobody will speak to, nobody will reach, nobody cares for, because they are human beings. They are image bearers of yours, just as we are. And we never know how you might work and whom you might save. Give us this conviction, O oh God, knowing we depend on you for everything, for the power, for the strength, for the motivation, for the wisdom, for the words to say, because you alone have the power to save. And we're grateful for that because it means you will certainly save everyone who you've determined to save. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.